Hey, so great to see all of you. My name's Josh, I'm teaching pastor here, and uh, we're so glad you're here at Door of Hope with us today. Um, we're going to continue in our series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, what we're calling the Kingdom of Grace. Uh, and we spent the last three weeks really digging into the Beatitudes, uh, which is, there's so much in them, and uh, you'll have to forgive me that those messages were long, but I essentially took what was once eight separate messages and squeeze them into two messages, which is not an easy task. Um, and I get so excited about what the scripture says, I just wanna share everything. But I need to remind myself, my wife thinks I should tattoo it on my forehead, the words of Jesus. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. Um, <laughs> it's to remind myself to just breathe, stop, breathe. Um, well, today we're going to cons uh, consider what are called the similitudes. And these are two beautiful proclamations that Jesus uh, speaks over his disciples. And really, uh, it's two proclamations that, that give the church its identity. Uh, and that is this. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned it is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Beautiful similitudes. We're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. I want to just begin this with a quote um, from Dale Bruner. I really love this. He says, Christian ethic is an ethic of become what you are, rather than the Greek or Confucian ethic of become what you should be. In Jesus' teaching, wholeness stands as God's gift at the beginning. Anyone who has been, heard me teach for any period of time has heard me say uh, that we are not working toward victory, we are working from it. That Jesus proclaims over his disciples, and this isn't an individualistic statement, this is a proclamation over the community of faith, wherever it is found, is that as people who have put their trust in Jesus, we are the salt of the earth, and we are the light of the world. He doesn't say these are things that we are to strive to become. He's saying we need to learn to become what he has proclaimed that we are. This is what it means to be a witness to King Jesus, that the church first and foremost is a sign, a signpost that points people to the living Christ. I think it's important for us to think in terms of salt and light um, both affect, affect their environment. That these two descriptions unveil the impact a Christian has on the world. The impact that a Christian community should have on the world. What I think is really fascinating about both of these metaphors that he uses to illustrate what we are is that salt nor light exists for themselves. Christians shouldn't exist for themselves. Salt's main mission is penetrating food. Christians' main mission is penetrating the earth with the gospel message. Salt a centimeter away from the plate, <laughs> from the food is useless. We generally don't look at the source, if we think of light, we don't look at the source of the light, we look at what the light reveals. And I think that these are important things for us to keep in mind, that God's purpose in our lives is not simply to save us, to get us out of hell, to get us into heaven, but to bring God into the very hearts of redeemed men and women, that we might actually be the carriers or the conduits of the living Christ. That when the world asks us, what is Jesus like? There is something about the church that is meant to reflect that question. 
that we are to reflect what Jesus is like. Now, the challenge, as I've been saying each week as we've been digging into the Sermon on the Mount, is that it is so easy for us to turn our Christian faith into some sort of behavior modification. It becomes about what we don't do as much as it becomes about what we should do. And the list of things that we don't do and the list of things that we should do often override the supreme command, which is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The law, the law of God is fulfilled in this singular word, love, but the love that fulfills that law is a love that is supernatural. It is not natural to the, to the soil of the human heart. This is why we must be born again. This is why we need a new heart. <laughs> it's not it's not, a, it's not heart uh, restoration, it's, it's a heart exchange. It's about having a new identity. It's about being something altogether new because if anyone be in Christ, all is new. It's a new humanity that we're to picture. And the beautiful thing here is that the purpose of the Christian life then is to, as we have received grace, we now are to be conduits. If we're to bring the kingdom or make known the kingdom on earth, the kingdom of grace is that we become conduits of Christ's very love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Everything we do should speak that into existence. Everything we say, how we love our spouses, how we love our children, how we love one another, how we interact with the world. Do we look at people with the lens of grace? Do we see people, no matter where they come from, no matter what their position is in life, do we see them as God sees them? Broken men and women, boys and girls, whom he loves and whom he is whom he is pursuing. I always say that we turn election often into this kind of perverse idea that it's about who's in and who's out. But I want you to think of election as occupation. He chose you so that through you he can reach all. And if the church forgets that, we have lost what it means to be salt and light. I want to just focus today on a just a few things about this picture of us being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And we'll begin with this statement, we are the salt of the earth. We have to ask the question of what is the purpose of salt? I, I, I love what Jesus says. He says, if a salt loses its flavor, um, how shall its saltiness be restored? Jesus is making a statement that actually is an impossibility. Do you know that? Can salt lose its flavor? I looked it up, of course. You know, there's a whole universe at our fingertips. Uh, can salt lose its flavor? Well, a salt that was created in 1924 that had iodine added to it, yes, because something impure was put into the salt it was actually, did you know that ionized salt is actually created and it was because there was an iodine deficiency in about 30% of Americans and they found that putting it into the salt was a good way and an easy way to distribute it among Americans and it, it dramatically dropped the, the low iodine levels which creates, I can't remember what the illness is, but it, it does something bad. Well, that's the only example of a salt that can go bad. Salt is a mineral and it never goes bad. It can last for hundreds of years, nothing changes its flavor. It is a preservative, it is a mineral. And Jesus is saying something that can't be, which is the point actually. He is saying, you are the salt of the earth, this is what you are. You can't not be that. So when you actually are not functioning as salt, that is just as salt is meant for food, the Christian is meant for the world. When you choose to make your life, your Christian life, about you and God, you actually are being something that Jesus knows nothing about. 
There is a a non-reality. And it is a terrifying thing to think that you and I as born-again Christians, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus and have entrusted our lives to him, who have become conduits of his grace, when we choose to receive grace but refuse to give it to others, that we are actually being something that Jesus knows nothing about. (laughs) Because if the love that we have experienced from Christ does not lead to an increasing love for others, then we are, we are pretending to be Christians rather than being the Christians that Jesus says we are when we are truly in him. I'm not saying that it's impossible to be saved and, uh, and, and be unloving. I'm saying that you are going against the very essence of what it means to be a new creation in Christ. And here's the thing, the problem is, is that we're told that, that we are to be living sacrifices, that we have died with Christ, and we have been resurrected into newness of life, and that old man, that old woman has died with Christ, has been buried with Christ, and we have been resurrected in newness of life. However, the problem is, is that the old man, the old woman, we've all seen enough zombie films, there's just something about dead things that just have an uncanny ability to raise back up. I mean, how many times have you put to death in the flesh something that you thought you had buried a long time ago and it just mysteriously comes back from the dead to haunt us? This is the, the great battle that is at play and by the very fact that though all sin, past, present, and future has been forgiven in Jesus because we live in this beautiful age of grace and we have accepted his forgiveness, it doesn't mean that sin isn't still at play and that though the sin may be forgiven, it still is, can create an incredible amount of damage in our lives. In fact, I would argue that every day sin is at play in our lives as followers of Jesus, and w- as we move into the concept of what does it mean to be the light of the world, part of that is, means that we no longer hide. That we are a people that comfortably come into the light. We're okay being exposed because we know who we are in Jesus. And it is the, the, the pushing into the light again and again that actually moves us into that place of that path of sanctification. But when we think of salt, I want us to think about these these realities. Salt can't go bad. So Jesus says, if you're mine, and you're in me, and I'm in you, this is what you are. So don't be something that you can't be. Be what I have created you to be because of your faith in me. What does salt do? Well, it preserves, it purifies, it flavors, it even kills. I was gonna do a slide of what salt does to slugs. <laughs> when I was a child, you know they say that sociopaths um, often uh, do torturous things to animals. Do slugs count? Because I weirdly had a strange fascination with the way that salt would just burn holes through those bad boys. Um, and it's really disgusting. I mean, they already look like snot, but when they're dead snot, it's just, it's a horrible thing, just these, they just literally burns holes right through them. Uh, salt, salt kills, but salt's primary purpose is to flavor and to preserve. And we think about this, uh, when we think about Exodus 30, 35, the command was given, I love this, in the temple, that, you know, that salt was to be added to the incense It says, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. That salt was a part of the the worship. In fact, the grain offering was to be presented with with salt. There's There's a preservation, there's a flavoring that occurs. But I think of the salt, you are the salt of the earth. Why are we that? Why are we the light of the world? And and it's because of this. It's the great mystery that Jesus proclaims throughout the Upper Room Discourse and why we as a church need a robust understanding of not just the Word of God, but the one who illuminates the Word, the Spirit of God. 
The Holy Spirit is the key ingredient in understanding what sanctification means for us because it is the Spirit of God that is the preserver of our lives, the seal of a guarantee of something even better coming in the future, that the Spirit of God is the one who preserves and flavors our life, if you will, because the fruit of the Spirit is the goal of the Christian life, right? Our ability to love fully requires a supernatural outworking. We need to know that we are loved by God and we need the capacity to actually give that love away. It is the Holy Spirit who pours the love of God out in our hearts. And the Spirit, I love the, even the picture of the anointing oil being, uh, being having salt in it. The, the Spirit is, the anointing oil is often a picture of the Spirit for us. And, and here we have the Spirit upon our lives who brings flavor to the life. Now, this is a, a kind of a weird idea, but I mean, what did Paul use? I, I love, Paul uses the, the example um, of us leaving the aroma of Christ. That there's, that, and, and I, I think about that, that is such a powerful picture of like, when you leave a room, you know, what smell did you leave? Are people, are people relieved that you're gone? Uh, or are they saddened that you're gone? Darcy, you know, the joke with, with the whites is that her and I have always worn so many essential oils all the time that people can say, like, I know, Josh, when you have walked through the building because it's a mixture of, like, patchouli and, like, three other essential oils that you always have on. I mean, I, it's, it, it's stuck in our clothes. Like, it doesn't even come out. It doesn't matter. Uh, and, and that aroma, it's like something unique. It's like that is a mark that Josh or Darcy have been in this place. But we think about that, the supernatural mark of Jesus Christ upon our lives is that there should be something different about us, something that flavors our, our experiences with others. They should be experiencing in us, as we have just worked through the Beatitudes, that there is a recognition that without Jesus we are lost. That there, is, that there is a comfort that has been experienced even as we have been broken in the world and by the world. There, that there is a meekness, there is a strength under control. I don't need the approval of men because I know who I am in Christ and that com comfortable reality. I am comfortable in my own skin because I was once lost and now I'm found. Is there a transformation that is evident to others when they interact with you is the question that I'm asking. This is what salt brings, it brings a flavor to life. Now, this is a fascinating aspect for me is I would say in my own life, having come to faith at 27, that there was so much, I didn't, I didn't know I had any oratory abilities whatsoever. I was a musician, I never talked between songs. I was terrified of speaking to people. I just like to sing or perform. I had a hard time even looking at people when I performed. I truly fit the, the description of what they, they, they called the shoegaze movement in the early 90s, which was artists that you know, had hair that hung down over their eyes and they just stared at their, their shoes and created droning, monstrous sounds. Uh, I mean, I had, I had to fight to become an entertainer because it was so unnatural I, I was so accustomed from my childhood of being invisible. When I met Jesus, there was something that happened, something transformed in me where all of a sudden, it's not that I now wanted to be seen, it's that I wanted people to meet Jesus who was the first person to make me feel truly seen. I had experienced what it means to be seen by God and I wanted others to know that they are seen by him. And it became this strange obsession that I didn't even care what relationships it blew up. And I would argue I probably was on that spectrum of, you know, it's like Keith Green. He, he's far more loved, you know, after he died. He was kind of known when he was alive and I've met people that knew him personally. It's, not being actually very, very nice because he was so zealous. Like people would go to his concerts and then he would chastise them for spending money to go to his concert when they should be missionaries. I mean, it's not a great 
you know, business model. <laughs> but I, I, what I heard is that he, his zeal kind of softened toward the end of his, right before he died, tragically, in a, in a plane accident. But, but I, I, at that idea, I, I kind of had that zeal, but I really did, the, the heart behind it was good. I wanted people to meet Jesus. I may have been a little overbearing in my presentation, um, but I mean, I was zealous. I told everybody about Jesus. I remember I was, I'd been a believer for two years, and I was laying sod in my backyard, and a man, our neighbor, uh, stuck his head over the fence, and he started screaming and swearing um, because someone had broken into his car, and the carport was, the, was butted up against our, our yard. And, he, and he, was, he was asking if we had seen anyone, but he was so angry, it was just like, and my, Henry was two years old. By the way, it's my son's 21st birthday today, and I can't be with him. It makes me so sad. Uh, he's, in, he's in LA working. Um, but uh, Hank's two years old, and I'm like, Darcy, take, I think this guy's like having a breakdown. I said, take him inside. And so I go to the fence, and the guy shares with me what happened, but I'm like, I'm like oh man, I'm so sorry. And then he just seems so angry that I'm like, this cannot be the only thing. So then I'm like, I'm like hey man, like I, like I understand it's a bummer to have your car broken into, but it just seems like there's a lot emotionally going on. Like, uh, I just, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm a pastor. Um, I was a brand new pastor. And I'm like, is there anything I could pray for you? And he was like, immediately, it's something about people finding out you're a pastor. It's like, it is... I, I have been, I've become strangers priests more than once. Uh, and he just starts opening up. His wife just left him. He was, you know, there was all these other things that were the undercurrent. We never know what's going on with people. One of the things I think that happens when Jesus puts his spirit in us, that salted reality of our lives is that flavor that comes is it, it gives us, uh, it gives us an, an um, an empathy for people that probably wasn't there before. And, and as I entered into the conversation, within 30 minutes, he invited me into his house. Within an hour, I had him on his knees and we were praying, he was praying to receive Jesus. And that, it was just, that was a pretty normal experience in my early years of, of faith. This isn't, I was not even thinking about preaching or being, I didn't, I don't even think I had read the whole Bible yet. I just knew enough about this Jesus that had saved me. I definitely had read the New Testament and I had memorized the Sermon on the Mount. So I just took those few verses I had memorized and I just, you know, overused them effectively. The thing that someone said to me early on at Door of Hope is I think what makes Door of Hope effective or what makes you effective as a pastor is that you really actually love Jesus. And it's fascinating that when I got to that place last year where I needed to go on a sabbatical because I, I was so wiped out, I, I, I think that sadly, that was one of the things that was being tested a little bit. Do I still love Jesus the same? Do I still have the same excitement? It's almost like the salt had lost its flavor a little bit. And what was left was the externals of what Jesus was always attacking is that I'm not, I replaced the saltiness of the Spirit's presence in my life because I'm communing with the living Christ with, well, I study the Word and I prepare sermons and I, I you know, I'm a full-time minister. I meet with people and I counsel and I do these things and God works through me in spite of myself. But there was a lack of flavor as I hit that burnout stage. It was like, it was like, the impossible was becoming real. The saltiness was not good for much. Um, and, and I felt like I wasn't leaving that, that, that flavor uh, with the people I was interacting with because I was becoming more and more turned in upon myself and my weariness. It's a dangerous thing um, to not trust in Jesus when we're weary. <laughs> um, it's, it's, weariness should lead us to, in my weakness, Christ is strong, but it's very easy for us to try to compensate. That is, we don't want people to know that we sense the flavor is dissipating, and so we hide. And when we hide, then we have to try to rely upon our own cleverness, and it just doesn't flavor the same way, does it? 
And, the, and how you know if you're functioning as one who is truly being a part of Jesus' great proclamation over the church, you are the salt of the earth, is that that preservation that the church is meant to bring to the world, it also brings preservation to the very one who is the salt of the earth. The Spirit's presence in us is meant to preserve us so that we do not grow weary doing good. And so I think that this preservation and flavoring works both ways. It works in, in, in terms of our own relationship with Christ and our awareness of his presence, and it preserves us in a dark world, but the church's presence in this world is what is the great restrainer against the evil that could be if we weren't here. The world is not as bad as it could be. <laughs> and let me just tell you this, that COVID gave us an incredible insight into, it's not, from my vantage point, I think there is a supernatural reality at play. I mean, I think if you have a Christian worldview, you should always believe that there is a supernatural or a spiritual reality that, is, that, it, that undergirds the very physical reality in which we live. And the church was shut down and we were not allowed to gather and it was like all hell broke loose on the planet. And I think it's a picture, there's a strange verse where it says that Jesus will return but first the restrainer will be removed. And a lot of, a lot of Bible scholars have argued what the restrainer is, I think it's the spirit removed. Um, and it's, it's, it opens up the possibility of evil being all that it wants to be. We're not as bad as we could be. And we sense the darkness in the world, but we also need to know that it is just a little bit of light can bring illumination to a whole room. But when we think about salt as a preservative, as a flavor, think about this. Salt is meant to stop things from perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are what? Perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The salt preserves us in a perishing world, but it also brings the saving reality to those that are perishing. It brings them out of perishing into preservation. This is the purpose of us being a sign, a witness to the living Christ. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not, what? Perish, but have everlasting life. Colossians chapter four, verses five and six, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Notice the salt here, that, that flavoring, that preservation is that we are given something more robust. We are more than human because we have Christ within us. And Jesus said, don't worry about what you'll say or how you'll answer for my spirit will be with you. You'll, you'll know what to say. I would say this is not a verse that tells you you don't have to read your Bible. The Holy Spirit cannot bring to remembrance what you have not first put into your head. <laughs> He's a good teacher. The problem is, is that we're crappy students. Isn't that true? I know, I had good teachers growing up. I was not a very good student. It didn't matter how good my teacher was if I wouldn't do my work. It didn't matter how good the teacher is if I wouldn't read the books that I was asked to read to explain the topic that I was supposed to learn. And I think somehow as Christians, we have got this, this silly idea. We can't figure out why Jesus isn't more real to us. God has revealed himself to us through his word. And his word is life and it preserves and it speaks to us and it points us to the living Christ, the living word. And God has chosen to reveal what he is like and what he thinks about you through a book. So you should learn to take it in. If you don't like to read, listen to an audio book of the Bible. Just today, I had to drive home from Sweet Home um, this morning early because my mother-in-law 
um, took a fall and she's, in, she's doing fine, but she's in the hospital and we just went down to help for a couple days. And as I'm driving here, I, like, I got up and was able to wrap up my message, but I also like to have devotions, even on Sunday, my own devotions. And so I listened to the whole book of Hebrews on the drive. The whole book, just that's all it takes. It a, and, and it finished before the drive was over. And then I followed that up with an incredible new Spotify mix that I made. It's, you know, you don't have to give up. Thing. It's amazing that if you actually read the Bible for an hour a day, you would literally read it every 75 days. That's just not that much. When I think about how fast I can, I can binge a TV show that I like, I mean, hours, hours and hours. I mean, people, I mean, my daughters watch Gilmore Girls like seven times. I mean, the amount of hours she's put into Gilmore Girls, like she could potentially have the Bible memorized by now. Um, and, and, but we all have those things. You know, what is, uh, what is Malcolm Gladwell's, uh, if, you've, if you've ever read his book, um, Outliers, he calls it the 10,000 hour rule. And the 10,000 hour rule is like, it, to be, to master something requires 10,000 hours essentially put into it. Uh, and I, I think that as Christians, if we want the world to experience what it means for us to be the salt of the earth, man, if we just took the time to master the only thing that ultimately matters and brings real peace and real joy to life, if we took God's word seriously and believed that every time we open it, Jesus wants to talk with us, to speak with us, and we prayed it in, there would be transformation. I think often, almost every time actually, I meet with someone that says, I'm really struggling with my faith, I'll ask them, how's your devotional life? Oh, I, yeah, I just, I can't, I just don't do it. I'm ADD. Join the freaking universe, okay? <laughs> We're a distracted world. We're a distracted world. There are ways, if you can't do it alone, do it with others. Find someone to read the word with. Find someone to pray through the scripture with. Begin to practice these things. Because what we should be practicing is not a bunch of you know, disjointed disciplines. What we need to discipline ourselves in is practicing his presence every moment. Because actually he is the salt. Salt doesn't just preserve and flavor. It also creates thirst. And I think there should be something about us, just as we should never be satisfied with anything less than more of him. As a deer panteth for the brook, so my soul thirsts for you, O Lord. This is what Tozer writes in The Pursuit of God, that to have found God and still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. There is a perpetual thirst in the believer that I want to continue to drink from the well that is available to me. He is the water of life, and, but we have to keep drinking. But there should also be something about us that creates a desire in those that we come into contact with. Is there something about your life that others want? And they can't put their finger on what it is. When I was in Russia, I remember being, uh, there was a group of us there sharing the gospel and we were in um, Razon. And we were walking around in Razan, and there were these college-age girls that kept following us around. And there was a whole group of us um, from this church. I was doing music um, at the time for a church plant. And we asked the girls through the translator why they were following us. And they said, we're following you because there's so much light in, in your group. That was their exact words. They didn't even know what to say other than there's so much light. There's something about your joy. There's something about, and I realized, I looked around the group and it was true, like this was still relatively close to, uh, to the end of Soviet era Russia. And so communism, one of the things in a communist regime is that you do not want to stand out. You want to blend in. People that stood out in Russia in the 20th century did not do too well. Uh, and so, you don't smile at someone when you walk down the street. Like that's not normal. Like you don't, 
you just, you're, you know, you're a bee <laughs> serving the hive and you don't have time uh, and it's not safe or healthy to show much emotion, which is it's such a crazy thing. And I didn't even realize it, but everywhere I went, I was just like, hi, like smiling. And, and I asked, like, I'm like, why is everyone, I went into one store and these, these kids behind the counter actually were so weirded out by me with my tattoos that they literally went to the other side of the store, like away from me. Like, and I, I, I literally quickly like checked my arm. I'm like, do I smell? What is going on? And, and the, my Russian friend goes, you have flair. <laughs> I don't, I'm like, I don't know if that's a good thing. Are you calling me flamboyant, sir? <laughs> but there is something different about us. There is a joy and it was infectious and people wanted to be near it. Do people wanna be near you because of your nearness to Jesus? When you talk about Jesus, are you talking about someone that you know? Well, let's talk about light. We are the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world. The city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. We have to keep in mind that Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The first thing we need to think about when we think about what it means to be the light of the world is it means first and foremost that we are to be a people that have come out of hiding. The first outcome of sin in the scripture when we find our first parents in the garden, the first thing that happened after they ate of the tree they were forbidden to eat from, the knowledge of good and evil, and they immediately became aware of their nakedness and now instead of being without shame were ashamed. Notice the relational fragmentation that occurred in them choosing to define for themselves what is right and wrong. That fragmentation led to a, to a split in relationship with God, a split in relationship with one another and even a new uh, a new wrong vision of themselves. There's like, talk about uh, body dysmorphia. I mean, they saw themselves in a new light, not as God intended them to see themselves. And they became ashamed and they immediately hid. In fact, when God, we're told, walked in the garden in the cool of the day, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Better is an open rebuke, says Proverbs 27, than hidden love. What I love about that story is they hid in the garden, and God walks right into the midst of of their dysfunction, right into the midst of their rebellion. He puts himself before it. He calls out his name. And we often read into that. We kind of picture some sort of angry, frustrated dad. And we, we hear in the voices, Adam, what have you done? But I think it was the sound of a heartbroken father who watching his children make decisions that have brought destruction to their relationships and to themselves. It was a call of love is what it is. And the one thing that God continually calls his people to be are a people that come out of hiding. It's the sign that we are forgiven. I think we often think in terms of forgiveness as something that um, became new to God when the cross happened, but God has always been a forgiving God. It's just solidified and finalized in the work of the cross. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, he was simply declaring God's very heart toward humanity. We are to be forgiven, and because we are forgiven, we no longer are controlled by shame and guilt. Instead, we know that we are sinners, we know what we have been forgiven of, and the difference between us 
and those who are lost is we don't hide our sin anymore because we know that it has no ultimate power over us if we confess it. It's funny that sin hidden hides God from our reality, puts us back in the dark, but sin confessed is bringing it out into the light and it often becomes the very place where God meets us most powerfully. Have you experienced the freedom that comes from just confessing some sin? This is something that we try to do as elders, confess to one another our brokenness because we don't think because we're in this role of care for the church that we're somehow spiritually better What we recognize is we're chief servants and we have to model the very transparency that we are calling you to week in and week out because the thing that will compel the lost world that what we believe actually makes a difference is not our pretense of trying to keep an ideal, pretend that we keep an ideal that we can't keep. No, the difference is that we know we're broken, we know we're lost, and our victory is our ability to confess it and move beyond it, to learn from our mistakes, to find healing and comfort in the fact that this is a community where it is safe for us to say, I'm a mess, and know that I'm still going to be loved. If grace is anything, it is love without contingency, but almost everything in the world is built on contingency, even the way that parents love kids. I've met too many kids whose parents rejected decisions that they made and their love was contingent. I felt like I never was doing good enough for my mom or my dad. How terrible for us as Christians to make our children feel like our love for them is somehow unsafe unless they perform in a particular way. How terrible for us as Christians to do the same thing to one another. How quickly does the church become a place of judgment rather than grace? Where we're quick to critique what the church isn't doing or what we think it ought to be doing. And and what's so terrifying is that we're to be the light of the world and often the light that we think is light is actually nothing more than darkness parading as light. Because the worst conduits of Satan's work in the world is when Satan uses God's servants to be his tools. This is why the worst damage that the church will ever experience always comes from within. It's, our greatest threats are not the agendas out there in the secular world order. The greatest threat is our own weakness in maintaining a, 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 a commitment to stay in the light and to continue to be a source of preservation and flavoring that is bringing the message of God's saving love to a lost world. But when we go into preserving ourselves up and against the world, we have lost the meaning of salt and we go back into the dark. Does that make sense? Because to come into the light doesn't mean that we pretend to be something we're not. That's, that's remaining in darkness. And your disciplines do not make you a Christian. Now, I just got done telling you how beautiful it'd be if everyone read the word, but if the word is your God, if it's penultimate, if you make something that's penultimate, ultimate, then the word is just another idol like everything else. But if everything we do is meant to bring us into deeper connection with Jesus so that we can be even greater conduits of his grace, This is when we begin to be the salt and light that God is calling us to be. Light illuminates. And what's cool is that we are not called, people generally don't look at the source of light. You don't stare at the sun. It's not good for your eyes. What we see is a world illuminated by the sun. The other thing that we need to know about light is that we are secondary light. We are not the source of the light. We are like the moon. We reflect the light of the sun. We don't have light that is, Jesus isn't mixing his light with our light. He is reflecting himself in and through us. And this is why the world's response to 
us living in the light and bringing the light of Jesus will not always be, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. What we need to understand is that all people will be drawn, but not all will respond the same way. For the very peace that Jesus brings is a sword that divides. Because men, we're told, preferred what? Darkness. It's not fun to be exposed. It's not fun to be exposed. And it's painful. This is why I love, even in the, I didn't read it, but I had it behind me, everyone will be salted by fire. It's, this is where I see light and salt come together in a beautiful illustration, is that fire illuminates, and we are, and that I love the whole idea of being salted, prepared for what? A sacrifice. And we are called to be a reflection of the one who is the sacrificial lamb without blemish. We are to be that sacrificial lamb. That is part of our witness, is that we witness to the world, but we don't fight against our enemies. We love them. We believe that God died for them. We don't choose who Jesus is going to save. We don't say he died only for the victims. We say he died for the victimizer and the victim. And we know that we all, because we have come into the light, know that we all can play both roles and will play both roles. And this is why the gospel is good news because it's God come down to us. Look at the final verse, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I love Ephesians 5, 8, 9. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. The fruit of light and the flavor of life is one thing. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christians can always strive to do good works and exhaust themselves in religious and social activity, but this will signify absolutely nothing if they do not accomplish the one mission that Jesus Christ charges, with, charges to them specifically, to be a sign, to be a witness to him. And how do we witness to him? Is that we believe that he loved us and we believe that he loves others through us. And if we are not bringing that saving message, God's call to a lost world, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Does your life reflect that message? Does your life carry with it a continual invitation to meet the very one whom you yourself have fallen in love with. Isn't that what it means to preach Christ and him crucified? It's just introducing people to King Jesus. And Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. If he's with you always, which he is, or we're wasting our time right now, then we should probably figure out how to attune our hearts and minds to hear his voice. And how sad that the Christ who is with us always we kind of treat him like, the, like the, the, rude, the rude thing that I've done occasionally to my wife at a party where I forget to introduce her to the, and you know what? The wrath of Darcy has not allowed that to be a habit, um, which is, she doesn't like it when we're standing in a circle and I don't introduce my wife to the people that we're talking to. It's, it's rude. And usually it's because I forgot the people's name and then I feel embarrassed. So I pretend I know them like, hey, yeah, you because um, I hide, like everybody. Um, instead of just being, come into the light, I'm so sorry, I have a very faulty memory, I do not remember your name. I feel like saying that is somehow saying that you don't matter enough to me to remember your name, but that's me being a little hard on myself, especially when you're pastoring a church that's really large, uh, and I wish I had a photographic memory. So if I call you, if I'm talking to you, and you've met me multiple times, and I never refer to you by your name, Odds are I don't remember it, but I'm not willing to admit it. <laughs> I'm just gonna start calling people just the first name that pops into my mind. You're like, Stephen? Like, Actually, no, my name's Nick. <laughs> oh, Nick, sorry. That's what I thought. That was my other choice. <laughs> the fruit of light and the flavor of life is life lived in the presence of King Jesus. 
He's the king, and he alone brings the kingdom. So the question is, is will you live in him? Do these things. The good that we do should be pointing to that relationship. It's not do a bunch of good things so that people know that you're a good guy. It's no, are you doing things that point people to Jesus? Because the glory notice goes to God the Father, not to us. It's fascinating how quickly even the works we do for God can become about us. I, I just listened to a song and the, the lyric line was, I had a dream that you died and somehow I made it about me. <laughs> that was the more profound line. What a gift we have at making things about us. May we make everything about Jesus. That's when we are truly being salt and light. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your gospel. I pray uh, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would fill us, renew us, open our hearts and minds up to who you are. Lord, as we come to this time of communion and worship, as we worship you by remembering you, as we worship you through singing of songs, as we worship you, as we pray for one another, as we repent, Lord. Lord, we don't talk about repentance enough. Repentance is such a beautiful word. It's about a change of mind. Lord Jesus, I am choosing to turn once again to you because you have made yourself known to me. Forgive me for going the wrong direction. Lord, I believe that for each one of us, the Christian life is, is a daily return to the heart of the Father. That is repentance. Turning again and again back to you and presenting ourselves at your feet, both the good and the bad. We just come into the light and allow you to do your purifying work. May we bring the flavor of your love to the world around us and to one another. And may we walk in the light, illuminating your presence to the world around us and to one another. As we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, we remember your sacrifice for us. As we give from the gifts that you have given us, recognizing that all that we have belongs to you. Lord, may we find the joy that comes in generosity. Lord, as this church needs your protection and your covering, and I believe, as I have prayed through this, that you are calling us to live more sacrificially so that the world can see that King Jesus really does change things. And Lord, as we close out our time, may we just sense your presence in this place. Holy Spirit, come. We pray all of these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheofhopepdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.